If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to the book of Song of Solomon, the much-anticipated Song of Solomon. For the record, this morning is the first time I have ever preached from the book of Song of Solomon. I have uh, read this book before. I have studied this book before. I have read and studied this book with Heather before, which is an absolutely delightful experience, particularly in light of James's admonition, not just to hear the word, but to do what it says. So, <laughs> this, is a, this is a great book. But this book becomes strangely awkward when you're sitting in front of a few thousand people, like... This is where we officially become a faith family today, where we sit down together and we have our own proverbial birds and bees conversation together. So we are crossing a line today. I just want you to know there are things that are in this book that we don't normally talk about in sermons. Uh, we don't normally talk about in public conversation at all. We don't use these words. There are things you read through this book and you're like, that is in the Bible? Like... Navels and bellies and breasts, oh my, like what is going on here? <laughs> and you start to wonder, like, why is this in here? And that's where I want us to see the goodness of God, the wisdom of God. Over the next four weeks, three out of the next four weeks, including today, we're going to look at Bible book overviews of three different wisdom books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And in these kind of wisdom books are given us in Scripture to show us how obedience to God and the glory of God are carried out and made known in the day-to-day -day routine of our lives, the practical ins and outs of our lives. And this is where it makes sense. Well, think about where we're going to go in the next few weeks, competitors to Christianity in our culture. I want you to think with me for a second, just beyond atheism, beyond agnosticism or Islam or Hinduism. Think about egotism, the idolatry of self, a way of living that surrounds us that says self is supreme, self-esteem, self-confidence, self-promotion, self-advancement, self-satisfaction. That is the mantra of our age. And we're going to see that next week addressed in the book of Proverbs. We're going to see that, that wisdom is not found in respecting ourselves, but in, in revering God. Think about materialism, the idolatry of stuff. It's just obviously huge in our culture. We're going to see that in a couple of weeks addressed in the book of Ecclesiastes and the end of stuff, where it leads us. But then this morning, I want us to look at another competitor Christianity in, in our culture and what some would say is the fiercest competitor Christianity in our culture, and that's eroticism, the idolatry of sex. There's no question that over the last century in our culture, we have undergone a sexual revolution. One of my friends, Pastor Mark Dever, writes... The most important revolution of the last century has been the sexual revolution. Contraception replaced conception. Pleasure was separated from responsibility. 
It was as if a license was given out, legitimizing the bending of every part of our lives around serving ourselves. Since that time, divorce, remarriage, abortion, premarital sex, and extramarital sex, as well as homosexuality, have been accepted by increasing percentages of the public. Pornography is huge business, and this is not just a problem with society out there. Many churches have found their members plagued by failed marriages and illicit affairs, by so-called private sins that turn into public disgraces, some of which are known, some of which are not yet known. We know, we see the effects of the sexual revolution every single time we turn on the TV. Every single time you go to a movie. Every single time you stand in a checkout line at the grocery store and you're surrounded by magazines. Every time you hear someone make a joke about sexuality, we see the effects and political discussions It's all across the board. So it's, among other reasons, a really good thing that we have the book of Song of Solomon. Because here's the deal, it would really, when you think about it, make no sense if we didn't have this book. Like, God has created us as sexual beings. It is really an integral part of who we are and how he has created us to relate to one another. It would make no sense if we had nowhere in the canon of Scripture where God addresses this. And so what we've got is the book of Song of Solomon that says, yes, you have physical longings and cravings and desires and urges, and you have them because God gave them to you. And He gave them to you for your good and for His glory. And so how can sexual love be experienced for our good and for His glory? Song of Solomon gives us the answer. Now, there's a lot of questions about Song of Solomon in the church, in the history of the church. Tons of questions. One commentator said this is the most debated, most difficult, most mysterious book in the entire Bible. It's a complicated book, difficult to understand. A lot of the language here, a lot of the words that are contained in the Song of Solomon are not found anywhere else in Scripture, which makes a lot of these words unique, a bit difficult to interpret. And you've got images that fill this book that are unfamiliar to us. You've got all kinds of plants and animals and spices and perfumes and unfamiliar places. And then the metaphors don't, don't always translate so naturally into our context. Like it makes sense when we see this man calling this woman his darling or a dove or a fountain. But when he says she looks like a horse... Or that her her hair reminds him of goats. Or when when he says that her nose is like a tower. We're thinking this guy has no hope of any action whatsoever. You don't say that. There's a lot of difficulty here that can make this tough to interpret. When you look in the history of the church, you see all kinds of different interpretations. People have asked, is this book allegorical? Is it allegorical? You have that in your notes. Remember allegory is like an extended metaphor where, where a story is told, but the story is not, it's, it's not really a true story. It's telling about something 
bigger. All the characters and all the details stand for something else. And so people have looked at this book throughout church history and said, well, this is a story, really, that points us to God's relationship with his people. And as a result, preachers, commentators have come up with all kinds of fanciful interpretations for what different things in this book mean. The very beginning of the book, the kisses that are mentioned, some have said, that's referring clearly to the word of God. The woman's navel or waist is a reference to the Sanhedrin. Her two lips, one stood for the law, one stood for the gospel. Her breasts have stood for all kinds of interesting things. Some have said they stand for Moses and Aaron. Like, I'm not kidding. I'm not making this stuff up. Like, Moses and Aaron got labeled this way. They stand for the Old Testament and the New Testament, for the two great commandments, love, your, love God and love your neighbor. Like, this is real stuff. These are sermons, commentaries. So, all right, let's leave that one behind. Is it typological? A type is like a shadow that points to an object that reflects something else or that points to something even greater. And usually this book is used to, as, a, as, as a picture or as a type of Christ in the church. And so all that we're seeing, say, for example, in the man here is pointing us to Christ. All that we're seeing here in the woman is pointing us to the church. Now we're going to talk about that a, a little bit later, but not go fully into a typological picture here. Others have asked, is it literal? Is it, is it just naturally a story about a man and a woman who love one another and are being loved by one another. But even among those who say it's literal, there's debate. Is it a story or is it just songs? Is this giving us a step-by-step narrative? There are some who say the beginning, it starts out with a man and woman seeking after one another, then they court one another, then they leads to their wedding day, then their wedding night, and then celebration of love after that. Is it that kind of narrative? Or is it just songs that are put together? And even among those who debate about whether maybe it's just songs, they say, well, is it just one song or is it a bunch of just random songs put together? Among those who say it's a story, they debate whether or not it's involving two characters or three. The most common view is that it's two characters, that it's Solomon and a Shulamite girl. But then there are others who say there's actually a third person in there. The Shulamite girl is in love with a shepherd, and Solomon is getting in the way of that, trying to lure her away from this lover by his riches. And so they debate whether or not it's two characters or three. And then there's the question of, is this book written to Solomon, by Solomon, or about Solomon? In the beginning of the book, it says, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And that literally can be translated any one of those ways. Is it two, like a dedication for Solomon? Is it written by Solomon? Is he the author? Or is this about Solomon? Is he the subject? Now, all kinds of different interpretations and questions. And I certainly don't want to claim to come on the scene today and solve all the problems and all the issues. But what I do want us to do is I want us to see what, what, is, what is pretty clear. And we're going to look at an overview of this book and try to see what is, what is pretty clear. And at, at the base in understanding this book, it is clearly musical. In other words, this is a song. It's a poem. This is love poetry. When it says the song of songs, literally it means, you got this in your notes, the finest of all songs. That's the title. The finest of all songs. And the claim is, and it's backed up, that this song is unmatched in its beauty and its arrangement and its poetry. You just think about this. Divinely inspired love poetry. Like you can't get any better than that. 
God breathed romance. God breathed poems about love, inspired by his spirit. This is unmatched by anything else in all history. It is showing us a celebration of sexual love. That's, that's what the book is doing. One commentator said the Song of Songs is primarily an unabashed celebration of the pleasure of sexual intimacy. And pleasure is the right word there. Because you will notice in eight chapters, you don't see kids mentioned anywhere. Think about this with me. Clearly, sex is not just for procreation. Sex is given by God for pleasure. Sex not just given so that we would multiply. Sex is given so that we would enjoy. That's the picture we've got here. It's a celebration of sexual love. And at the same time, this book is reminding us of cautions about sexual love. This is where I want to show you three, one phrase mentioned three different times. I want you to underline it because this is huge. Chapter 2, verse 7 is the first time you see it. Three times in this book, the author reminds us that sexual love is good only in the timing which God has set. Listen to verse 7, chapter 2. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Underline it there. You not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Then you get over to chapter 3, verse 5. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field. Here it is again. That you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Then you get over to chapter 8, verse 4. Same thing. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This is so different than the world. The world says anytime, any place, any person. And what Song of Solomon is going to show us is that this only happens like this in God's time, in the place that God has ordained, with the person God has given to you. This is very different from what our culture would say. Now here's, here's where I want to pause for a second because I know that there are many brothers and sisters in our faith family who are here this morning who are not married. Maybe you're students. Maybe you're adults who are single. Maybe divorced, widowed, variety of different circumstances all across this room. And what I want to say to you this morning, if you are not married, is that this book and this sermon are not just for married people. They're for people, this book and this sermon is for single people as well. Here's why. Yes, clearly this book is for married people. It is an encouragement and exhortation to remember and enjoy the beauty of sexual love. And it is an exhortation and encouragement for all who are single in this room to make sure 
not to try to steal away the beauty and enjoyment of sexual love out of its context and end up missing the whole point. You'll miss it when what we're seeing about sexual love in Song of Solomon is ripped away from the context of marriage. So here's the deal. This is what I love about what we're doing this morning. Usually, when it comes to students or those who are single, the message that we preach in the church is sex is bad. So don't do it. Okay, there, now. Go have a nice life. Like that is what we say. What I want to say to you this morning is in some sense is the exact opposite. I want you to see that sex is really good. You can like quote me on that. <laughs> Send that on, on your Twitter. <laughs> I want you to see that it's good, it is valuable, it is grand, it is majestic and wonderful in the context God has put it in. We take it out of that and we rip it all apart. And so I want you to value it so highly. I don't want you to see it as bad. I want you to see it as wonderful, wonderful enough to make sure to keep it in its proper context. And to avoid every impulse in your sinful nature and in the culture which surrounds you to pull it out of that context because once it's ripped from that context, it is obliterated in its beauty. And I say that intentionally. It is obliterated in its beauty. So guard it. And this is where Song of Solomon 8, we don't have time to look there, but you see the brothers of this, the woman in this passage who guard their sister. They say she is a garden locked up, a wall closed in. We're going to guard her purity. And I think there's a picture there for us as a faith family this morning. My prayer is that together we would guard one another when it comes to the beauty of sexual love. That yes, we would nurture that among married couples, and then among single brothers and sisters in this room, that we would help guard one another. Brothers in this body of Christ, guard your sisters. Protect your sisters. Do not take advantage of your sisters. And though the exhortation is the picture is men guarding the woman, I, I would go so far as to say to sisters in this room, guard your brothers. Do not entice him. And while we're just putting it all out on the table this morning, to the sisters in this room, Dress in a way that glorifies God. Particularly as we go into these summer months. Do not lead your brother astray. And I'm not just talking about when we gather together for worship, though certainly when we gather together for worship, but even on a bigger scale, at what point is it appropriate to draw attention to yourself in a way that leads your brother to sin? Throw away skimpy clothes. 
Find your contentment and your joy and your identity in Christ and not how they look at you. And in the process, be a garden locked up until God ordains that you might let loose and do so then for the glory of God. And dress conservatively, not because we are legalistic around here. Dress conservatively because we love one another around here. And because we love the glory of God. So, we're going to see a celebration of sexual love and be reminded of cautions about sexual love. I pray that as a faith family, we will heed both. So here's the picture. This is where we're going to camp out most of our time. A king and his bride in Song of Solomon. The last half of your notes there, we're going to cover in like five minutes at the end. So don't get nervous. We're going to camp out right here. And what I want us to see is I want us to see five facets of this relationship between the king and his bride in the book of Song of Solomon. And they're just facets that are repeated over and over and over again. And I want us to see in it the beauty and the pleasure that are found in sexual love. All right, here we go. Facet number one, exclusive devotion. They sought out only each other. They sought out only each other. Now, as soon as I say that, I know there's some who think, and you might think when you're reading through this book, I don't get it. If this is by Solomon, or about Solomon, and dude had multiple wives, then how can you say this is exclusive devotion? This is where we go back to that whole conversation about whether this is to Solomon, about Solomon, or by Solomon. But the reality is what we see in Song of Solomon is clear. This is a man and a woman who only have eyes for each other, who are devoted to seeking each other out. You look in the very beginning, this is where it starts. Chapter 1, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Draw me after you. Then you get to chapter 3. Look at verse 1. Draw me towards you, then listen to her. She says, on my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. She's seeking after him and only him. Look over in chapter 4. We're going to look at this more in depth in a minute, but look at verse 12. I've already mentioned this imagery. He says about her, A garden locked is my sister, my bride. And the sister there is just term of endearment. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Basically what he's saying is she is locked to all other men but me. And you get down to verse 15. He says, to me she's a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams from Lebanon. You get over to chapter 7 verse 10 and you see this phrase that's very similar to what we just read. And she says, I am my beloved's. And his desire is for me. What I want us to see is that the beauty we are uncovering here in the book of Song of Solomon is characterized by exclusive devotion. They are 
unwavering in seeking after one another and looking toward one another on longing for one another. And oh, I pray that this would be the pattern of marriages all across this room. Married couples in this room, men, do not let another woman distract you for a second. Don't even look. Don't look and do not let a magazine substitute for your wife. Not let the internet substitute for your wife. And ladies, do do not flirt for a second. Run from any thought of it. Why would you settle for garbage and another man when you have gladness in the husband that God has ordained for you? Men, why would you settle for trash? And that's what any other woman is to you in this way. Trash, when you have treasure in your wife, or your future wife, or your future husband in these ways. Don't settle for less. Don't, don't have weak desires. There are so many of us, all it takes is a little bit to satisfy. Be done with weak desires. Have strong desires for that which is best. That's what we're seeing here. Oh, the beauty. I praise God when I think about my wife. And the fact that I know that she belongs to me and I to her and us alone in this, that I can say with all integrity in this room this morning, by the grace of God, that my eyes are completely fixed on her. She has my full affection. And to receive her full affection. This is God's design. And it's in this garden. A garden closed to everybody else. But you and your wife or husband. That things get really, really good. Heated anticipation. Now, I want you to see two facets of the anticipation that builds. Between the man and the woman in Song of Solomon. Regardless of whether this is a drama or not, there is clear anticipation. Two facets. First, they began with tender words. They began with tender words. You see them just complimenting and affirming one another throughout this book. It's love poetry, them affirming one another. Look at, listen to her in chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. Listen to, listen to her talk to him. She says to him, My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is the 
finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is so sweet and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. That will make any guy feel great. Like, if I had a dollar for every time Heather told me my arms were rods of gold set with jewels, I would be a rich man. (laughs) This picture here, she is affirming him. He is affirming her. Look in chapter 6 right after this, verse 4. You are beautiful, as beautiful as Terza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. We're going to look at some more specifics. Skip down to verse 9. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? Don't miss this. Pleasure, this is not in your notes, no extra charge. Pleasure with one another is grounded in praise for one another. Pleasure with one another is grounded in praise for one another. Like these verses are worth memorizing for moments where they are appropriate. It is good to build up one another. That's where it starts. Notice chapter 1, verse 1, doesn't just start, well, here's a picture of sex in the Bible. Instead, we see it built up to, surrounded by on all sides, tender words that then lead to tantalizing work. I just wanted to use the word tantalizing in a sermon. Now, this right here is the climax of the book. This is where, this is where we're going to get tantalizing. Go to chapter 4, verse 1 with me. Basically, what happens here, this is the climax of the book. It's the middle of the book. It is where the king looks at his bride and basically begins to mentally, if not physically, undress her from the top down. That's what's happening here. Chapter 4, verse 1. And I love the imagery here because it's so beautiful. It's appropriate and alluring at the exact same time. This is a good picture for us to see. This is appropriate and good. Evidence of the goodness of God and the grace of God. And it's good for this to allure us in the context of where God has put it. Chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. He's talking to her. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Little explanation here. They say 
that from a distance, if you were to see a flock of, of sleek black goats that were coming down a mountainside, a hillside, that with the sun glistening on their, off their backs, this would just be beautiful. So we'll take their word for that. And the picture would be then as she is letting down her hair and he sees her flowing dark hair, that he is drawn, he is allured. Verse 2, your teeth are like a flock of shorn hooves that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. <laughs> so your translations say, not one of them is missing. <laughs> That's a great pickup line. Well, you've got all your teeth, so. I, I sent that verse out on, on Twitter this last week, and I had more than one person from the state of Kentucky reply to me. It's what they said. I didn't say this. They said this. Reply to me and said, this verse does not apply in our state. I don't know what's going on in Kentucky, but strike that verse in Kentucky. Verse 3, your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like the halves of a pomegranate behind your veil, blushed red like sweet fruit, attractive to the eye, ready to be kissed. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Now that, that's not him saying, well, you've got a big fat neck. Like that's not what he's saying there. <laughs> the picture here is most likely not comparing her neck to an, an appearance to a tower. Like just like the tower is big and large, so your neck is big and large. <laughs> like it's not what he's saying. Instead, what he's saying is, and it's similar in type, just as the Tower of David is beautiful and elegant, so your neck beautifully holds your head high above your beautiful body. That's the picture. Now, that'll work. Verse 5, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. In light of the awkwardness here, I'm going to quote to you from my good friend Danny Aiken, who wrote a wonderful commentary on this book called God and Sex. But he said this well. He writes, note that there is nothing even remotely pornographic about this imagery here. Pornea clearly refers to evil sexual desire, and an entire industry is built on exploiting the sinful passion. But, but the point here is that a man's desire for his wife is holy. His pleasure and erotic desire for her is holy. To deny this is to deny one of God's good gifts. 
He compares this part of her body to twin fawns of a gazelle that feed among the lilies. They are soft and attractive, tender and delicate. Then he describes them as two mountains, one a mountain of myrrh and the other a hill of frankincense. Both spices were expensive and used as perfume for the body and the marriage bed. So enraptured is he that he desires to make love to his wife all night long until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Well said. This is good. The writer continues, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips... Drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Apparently the French did not invent that one. (laughs) The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. (laughs) Is this as awkward for you as it is for me? A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits. Henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. This is like, it's like a fantasy garden. Like a lover's dream to find all these fruits and all these spices and all these flowers all together in one garden to find sights and smells and tastes all together. What the husband is saying is, that is my bride. And she is wonderful. And every time I enter into her garden, then I discover new sights and smells and tastes to feast on that are beautiful. That's the picture. That every time he goes in it's to, to time with his wife, then the picture is a new and exciting adventure. This is God's design. This is tantalizing work that leads to intimate consummation. When they gave over their bodies to one another. Now you don't really see it very clearly in the ESV in verse 16, but clearly there's a shift from the man addressing the woman to the woman addressing the man, but he doesn't, she doesn't address him directly. She says, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden. Let its spices flow. We've already seen how her garden has been locked up, and so the picture is she calls upon the winds to take that which has been held in, encapsulated in, and to let it flow to her husband now. And I love this picture. Listen to this. Let my beloved come to his garden. You hear that? Not let my beloved come to my garden. She says, let my beloved come to his garden. I am my beloved. Mine is his. That's the picture here. They're united together. And this is basically the climax of, of the book. 
I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Oh, don't miss it. This is pure satisfaction right here on every level. It is emotional satisfaction. We've seen this. There is joy and desire and intimacy and respect and honor here. This is so much more than just the joining of two bodies. It's the joining of two personalities. All the more reason, brothers and sisters, to guard this. When we toy with our sexuality, we are toying with that which is deepest about who we are. It's why when we see the Bible talk about a man and a woman coming together, we see the language. They knew one another. This is the deepest, most intimate knowledge of one another. This is more than just that which is happening between two bodies. This is emotional connection and union that is brought together that's by God's design, which leads to the second part, spiritual satisfaction. This is evident when you take this book and you compare it with Genesis chapter 2, especially verse 24 and 25, the man and woman, talking about Adam and Eve, were together, they were naked together, and they felt no shame. And then it says they, were, they came together as one flesh. This is a virtual commentary on that, on what God has designed for man and woman to experience. And you remember when they sinned in Genesis chapter 3, what was the first effect that we see of their sin? Do you remember? They noticed they were naked and they clothed themselves. And the intimacy that they had once shared in a sinless world was ripped apart. And Song of Solomon is obviously not saying that this is a man and a woman who were sinless. But here's the picture. God redeems this. And what he does in sexual love is he takes his original design and he makes it available for his people. He says, this is what you were created for, the kind of union that is happening here, a one flesh, vulnerable, open union with one another. Emotional satisfaction, spiritual satisfaction, intellectual satisfaction. We've already talked about this. We've seen the man and the woman targeting the most important sex organ we have, our minds. They've built up one another and encouraged one another. They've mentally and verbally acknowledged one another's beauty. And don't miss it here. Don't get the wrong idea. Nowhere in Song of Solomon do we see that this couple is the model Hollywood couple. We don't see really any details about what they look like. Instead, we see, the only glimpses we see of this man and this woman are through the eyes of each other. And they see the beauty that God has uniquely designed for them in a way that is, that is not for anyone else to share. That God has designed us in our marriages to experience a satisfaction on these levels that can only be experienced between us, between Heather and me, between wife and husband. That's the picture here. All of it, of course, leading to physical satisfaction. And I love the way chapter 4 ends and goes into chapter 5, verse 1, because it doesn't give us all the details. It doesn't give us this whole picture of this whole scene. Instead, it uses imagery. 
let my beloved come to his garden, eat its choicest foods, fruits. He ate, he drank, be drunk with love. Achan said, we cannot be certain of all that is meant by the imagery of coming to the garden and tasting the choice fruits, but it is not difficult to imagine all sorts of good stuff. This is the picture God has designed. Pure satisfaction on every level. Now, my favorite part of the book, as if that's not enough, is chapter 8, verse 14. Very last verse. I want you to see where the book ends. What you've got is this enraptured romance on every single verse, every single page. And then you get to verse 14, and she says to him, Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Like after all that we see and read about in this book, the book ends with a perpetual invitation. The woman saying to the man, Let's do this again soon. Huh. That's awesome. After all of this, she says, be like a gazelle, bro. Hurry, be swift, and go to the mountains of spices again. This is the beauty of sexual love. It perseveres. It lasts again and again and again and again and again. God is good. Gracious, glorious in the way he has created all of this. And that, that is what the song, book of Song of Solomon is about. And my prayer is that just on this level, it would encourage us in this room. I, I pray that it would encourage, that this text this morning will encourage every married couple in this room to delight fully in one another and to Put this word into practice. I had a couple come up to me after the 9 o'clock worship gathering and tell me that they were skipping small group to go home. <laughs> Not lying. Like, too much information. Like, oh. <laughs> so... But yes, yes, like <laughs> I, uh, I, I joked this morning that nine months from today, our preschool area should experience a revival. Like that would, that would be obedience. I, I pray that this will encourage you in your marriage. I pray that if this is an area that is struggling in your marriage, and don't worry, I'm not going to get into sex counseling by any means here. What I want to say to you as preacher of the word and your pastor is foster health in this area of your marriage. Promote, nourish this area of your marriage. And for every person who is not married in this room, no matter what the situation is, I pray that you will see the beauty of sexual love in this context. To pray for your brothers and sisters who are married to experience that and 
to make sure to guard that and, and not take that which God has created so beautifully here and rip it apart outside of the context for which he has ordained it in any way, mentally, emotionally, physically. And God is gracious. He has created us in this way and he will be gracious to sustain us in that. Now, the reality is, and what we've seen all throughout Scripture, is that everything in this canon of Scripture is pointing us, in a sense, to something greater, pointing us to redemptive history. So this is where I want us to think about where does a book about sex, the Song of Solomon, fit into redemptive history? This is, we're not going to go typological here and say, well, this means Christ, and this means church, and this means Christ right here. But here's the deal. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 5. I want to show you two different places in Scripture. This is where we're going to fly through. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 is where we'll start. We've looked at this passage before, but here's the deal. We've already looked back at Genesis chapter 2 and seen that God created man and woman for one another. To be joined together as one flesh. And Solomon... Song of Solomon is a reflection on that, a commentary on what that means. So I want us to look at what the New Testament teaches about this one flesh union that we've just read about in Song of Solomon. Verse 22, Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and his, himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Listen carefully. Verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Did you see what Paul just did there? In verse 31, he quoted from Genesis 2, 24 and 25. A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. And Paul says, here's what that means. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Don't miss this. What Paul is saying is that when God designed marriage and this union, the sexual union together in Genesis 2, he did it with a bigger picture in mind. He designed marriage this way to point one day to the love of Christ for his people. And so what we realize is that what God has designed, what we've seen pictured here in Song of Solomon, while we don't have to go back and look at every single detail and try to draw it to Christ in the church, we realize that this picture between man and woman in love is a picture of Christ and his church. And just as a man gives his body over to his wife, so Christ has done this for his church. And just as 
A man and a woman delight in one another, find satisfaction in one another. So Christ and his church find deepest satisfaction in relationship with each other. And so what's happening here is Ephesians is pointing us to the relationship between a king and his bride. To use similar language, similar facets. Think about the picture here in Ephesians chapter 5 and what we see in the gospel in the New Testament. A picture of humble devotion. The king, King Jesus, has sought after you. Think of it like a husband seeking after a bride in a much greater way. Jesus has sought you. Has come looking for you. Historic anticipation, what the Old Testament longed for. Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's Word. All these pictures and all these promises we're seeing in the Old Testament are pointing us, even in Genesis 3, verse 15, when in the middle of sin, God gives a promise and says, I'm going to send one who will conquer the adversary, redeem you. This is Christ he's pointing to. Christ is the one who's going to redeem and make this possible. He's the fulfillment of all God's word. He is flawless in all his works. He comes and keeps the law perfectly like no one else had ever done or will ever be able to do. And this, the perfect son of God in sacrificial consummation gave up his body for us. That's what Ephesians 5.25 said. He gave his body, himself, for her. So that, so that you and my, me in him might be reconciled to God and experience total satisfaction that we might find our greatest delight in, to use the language of Matthew twenty two thirty seven, loving him with all our heart. Full emotional satisfaction. Loving him with all our soul. Loving Him with all our mind, intellectual satisfaction, that our delight is found in knowing God, knowing Him, and loving Him with all our strength. Total satisfaction, heart, mind, soul, and strength coming together, all made possible by a merciful invitation. Trust in Christ as Savior and King, and He will forgive your sin. And present you as his bride, holy, without blemish or a spot. That's the gospel right there. The holy God of the universe has sought you out, sent his son to bear his wrath due our sin on the cross, to show his power over sin in the resurrection of Christ so that everyone in this room who trusts in Christ as Savior and King may be reconciled to God in relationship with him forever. That is glorious news. And it is what marriage is intended to point us to. And it raised the Song of Solomon to a whole other level. Husbands, why do you need to have exclusive devotion for your wives? We need to do this because we are showing the world how Christ treats his church. And if, if Christ gives up on his church, then maybe it would be okay for us to give up on our wives. But Christ will never give up on his church, so we can never give up on our wives. And just as 
we as the church are intended to find our delight in our Savior. So, wives, I implore you to encourage and love husbands. It's the way Ephesians 5 says, so that we would show that Christ is indeed delightful to the world around us. That's the gospel here. And it points even to one greater picture. I want to show it to you. This is where we'll end. Revelation chapter 19. A king and his bride in Revelation. Earthly marriage is a foretaste of something greater in heaven. Earthly marriage is a foretaste of heavenly marriage where we as God's people are depicted as the bride of Christ. And our glorification in heaven is actually pictured as a wedding day. So to every single man and woman in this room, whether you are single or married, does not matter. No matter what, how, what, no matter what your age is, no matter what your marital status is, to every single person in this room, look forward to this wedding day. Revelation 19, verse 6, I heard what seemed to be like the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Lord Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For, listen to this, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Flip over two chapters to Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. The other time we see this imagery, listen to this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Listen to verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning no crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is, this is the beauty of marriage and heaven to which marriage on earth is intended to point us. Point us to the reality of a relationship marked by continual devotion. Brothers and sisters, the king who sought you on the cross will never stop seeking you. Your king will pursue you as his beloved until that day. And that doesn't mean it will always be easy. It wasn't easy for these brothers and sisters, suffering saints in Revelation, facing persecution. But what he says, hopeful anticipation, cling to God's word. What John is saying in Revelation, cling to God's word, trust in his word. The king is coming for you. Cling to his word and commit to God's work. Don't waver in following after your king. Church, trust in and follow after your king. Do not waver because glorious consummation is coming when our bodies will one day be made complete with, with him. We will be resurrected with him. Together we will experience in its fullness eternal satisfaction, eternal delight in our husband Christ. He will heal our hearts. To every, every brother or sister in this room for whom Song of Solomon this morning has opened up difficult wounds, 
from broken marriages or damaged relationships or lost loved ones. I want to remind you that you have a husband in heaven who will one day heal your heart completely. He will heal our hearts. We will wear his righteousness. To every brother or sister in this room for whom Song of Solomon has put before you, convicted you of sexual sin in your past or maybe in your present, and you feel stained, his forgiveness is complete. And his righteousness is yours to wear. The righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. We will see his face. Our longings for intellectual stimulation will be met supremely in the face of our king. And we will feast at his table and enjoy his presence for all of eternity. All of this leading to the ultimate invitation. And this is the question I want to ask every single person in this room. Will you surrender to the love of this king? Will you surrender to his love to any and every person in this room who has never surrendered to the love of this king, I want you to know, I want you to hear, I want you to see in Song of Solomon, in Ephesians, and in Revelation that there is a God in heaven who desires your good, who has created you for his glory, and who's pursued you in your sin and your rebellion against him, in your spiritual adultery. He has come after you faithful, and he has brought you even to this place this morning to hear a picture of of infinitely wonderful love expressed in Christ on a cross. And I want to encourage you, in just a second, these guys are going to lead us in a song about the beauty of God and his love toward us through Christ on the cross. And I want to invite you, if you have never trusted in him as your Savior and King and surrendered to his love in your life, to let your heart be open to him for the first time today. Confess your need for him. Ask him to change your heart. And to every Christian brother or sister in this room, if there is sexual sin or other sin in your life that you're toying with, to let go of it, to find healing and forgiveness in him this morning, in his love that allures you to himself, I want you to see the beauty, not just of sexual love. I want you to see the beauty of your God. And I want you to see the beauty of his love for you. And I want you to let your heart be drawn to him as the bride of Christ.